Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We kick off today's show with pain at the pump, sky high gas prices. I'm checking out gasbuddy.com right now. Best price around Metro Vancouver. Ah, about a dollar sixty-nine a liter in some places. They can get a little cheaper if you shop around. I was checking out Gas Buddy. So uh, the Husky station on the Fraser Highway in Surrey is one sixty-eight nine, according to Gas Buddy. The Shell station in Surrey one sixty-nine nine. Some higher prices at other gas stations as well. Man, you talk about pain at the pumps here. On Friday, we hit a record high gas price. It was a buck seventy-six. In some places, what a whack in the wallet here. Have a listen to this report now from Global News. Same pump, same product, much different price. Gasoline in Metro Vancouver surging higher in the new year, and the worst is still to come. We are going to see an all-time record uh, on Friday. Thursday morning, the price around Vancouver was just under $1.70 a liter. The price expected to keep going up until Friday when analysts expect it to reach a price of $1.77. It's a reflection of the acute shortage of gasoline now south of the border in Washington State and Oregon. Okay, now, is it really just the fault of a short supply south of the border? I mean, who really dealt this mess? Is it the big greedy oil companies? Is it government taxation? And think about this now. Should the price be actually a lot higher we're in a climate change crisis right now a lot of pressure on government to jack up carbon taxes should gas prices go even higher this year let's discuss now with our guests we've got a great panel for you on this peter mccartney he's a climate change campaigner with the wilderness committee i'm very pleased to welcome him back hey peter thanks for coming on hey thanks for having me appreciate it a lot chris sims also on the line bc director canadian taxpayers federation hi chris Great to be here. Thanks. Okay, guys, Peter, let me go to you first. Like when you see those gas prices right now, I know you've been campaigning for a long time for increased carbon taxes. So I guess you think what these prices should be even higher. Yeah, I mean, the idea, nobody likes high gas prices. um, But the idea with the carbon tax is that you shouldn't be paying it. Um, By 2030, they will go up to $170 a ton. That's about 37 cents a liter on gasoline. And let me tell you, you're not going to care because in eight years, you'll be able to take public transit wherever you need to get to. You'll, your kids will be able to ride their bikes to school without having to worry about them uh, you know, getting hit by a car on the way because there's actually proper bike lanes on the way. And so the idea behind the carbon tax is actually that you don't have to, you, at once you decide uh, and are able to transition to a different type of transportation, you don't have to pay it anymore. Okay, Chris Sims, what do you think of that? It sounds nice and like a futuristic utopia fiction. Um, it's great for people who live in hyper-urban downtown cores who might be able to live that way, but what about the people who live in the guts of Surrey or in Dense Langley or in spread out Abbotsford or in Chilliwack or who have two vehicles or who have two jobs and who have to get their kids to school or who are disabled? Um, wow, not everybody can walk to a bus stop that is easily convenient that will get themselves to their destinations on time. That's that's wild. And if you think about how much we depend on our vehicles, both for our on-time delivery to our education services, our work services, our healthcare appointments, we depend on these vehicles. And if you start nailing people at $1.76 a liter, say you've got a yeah. two-person working family. Just imagine this. Say you're like in Langley, for example, and you commute. You've got a minivan that costed $132 to fill up at that price. You got even a brand new pickup truck, that's $193 to fill that up. You do that all year, that's about ten grand at that price. Okay, Peter, what do you say to that for people who don't have that transit option or have all these responsibilities to, and they have to take a drive a car or a truck? Well, first of all, I mean, Chris is right. People are dependent on their vehicles, and that's the problem. We need to invest in transit like we invest in education and healthcare because to be able, the ability to move around, 
is a fundamental right, just like those other things. And in terms of affordability, you know, uh, your personal vehicles are often the household's second greatest expense after housing, which means that it's actually, uh, when you look at transit or transportation and housing costs together, it's actually often cheaper to live in an urban center. So we need, you're right, we do need fundamentally good transit in, in Chilliwack, in Abbotsford, in Surrey, so that people, no, nobody actually has to own a car. And that's ultimately the goal, is that you don't need one of these yeah. personal vehicles, this expense hanging over your neck, um, to be able to go about your daily life. Okay, talking gas prices with my guests Peter McCartney and Chris Sims. Chris, when you take a look at the price of gas in Metro Vancouver and the tax bite there, can you quantify that? Like, are these the highest gas prices in North America right yes. now? And, yeah. and the highest gas taxes in North America. Now there yeah. might be some weird outlier, uh, you know, at a, a base in North, you know, Northwest Territories or something. But practically and generally speaking, yeah, these are the highest gas prices. And, is and it, does it work? Like, is, it, is there any evidence that the carbon pricing is, system is working right now? Well, no. And we have to remind ourselves when this was first launched in 2008 by the BC Liberal government, they told us it was going to stop at $30 a ton. It was going to be revenue neutral, that the money would somehow create a whole bunch of alternative energy that would be able to opt into. And this is key. They said it was going to make emissions go down. It's not. Emissions are going up. They've gone up 10% in the past three years, and they've gone up in five of the last seven years. Why? Because demand for something as essential as energy for personal transportation is typically inelastic, meaning you can't just cut it out. It's not like reducing your sugar intake. Peter McCartney, what do you say to that? You know, the reason that uh, emissions have gone up from transportation is because people are driving bigger trucks and bigger SUVs um, because that's what these car companies are churning out in order to make more and more money. And so, you know, ultimately, uh, the provincial emissions would be a lot higher if we didn't have this carbon tax in place. And the other thing is that um, the B.C. Liberal government uh, in the early 2010 stalled the carbon tax. And the whole reason for a carbon tax gradually increasing year after year is that people can make decisions around that. So people can go buy a new fleet of electric vehicles because they know that it's going to keep going up. So that was one of the reasons that the carbon tax hasn't been as effective as it could have been. Hey, Peter, let me ask you this real quick, and then we'll take a break and we'll get some phone calls going too. But do you think these oil companies, these gas companies, are gouging the public with these prices? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they are in it for one thing and one thing only, and it's their profits. And so we need to, uh, you know, make, take them out of the equation completely. I have a question. I have okay, a go question. ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so are you against private vehicle ownership? Like, if you could wave a wand, would you make it so that people don't own their own vehicles and just rely solely on government-funded transit? I would make it so that nobody has to, so that nobody lives in a place where there's no other option for them. If you want to own a personal vehicle and that is your priority, you go right ahead. I would prefer it to be an electric vehicle. Um, and, and that's ultimately where we're going to have to get to, is that anybody that wants to own one of these, you know, expensive um, personal vehicle equipment, um, they're, they're going to do so as a choice and not as a requirement right. to and live so where they want to. Switch, if we switch away from gasoline and diesel, as Blair King has pointed out many times in Langley, we would need around nine new Site C dams to power that amount of electricity. That's just from vehicles. That doesn't include home heating. You buying that, Peter, that argument? That's only if everyone transitions from a uh, personal gas vehicle to an electric vehicle. And that, you're right, that's exactly why we need a massive okay. investment in public transit, because we can't have everyone just driving an electric car. That's okay. not going to work. Okay. All right, welcome back. Talking gas prices with my guests, Peter McCartney and Chris Sims. Lots of phone calls here. Jeff in Vancouver. Hi, Jeff, go ahead. Hey, thanks for the call, taking my call here. Sure. So two quick items. Um, number one, the CRA has a per vehicle allowance like per kilometer, and it's the same rate for all provinces. Why do we not have a higher rate in BC when our insurance, taxes, gas prices are more? I think that should be changed. And the other one is I have a service company, and the way I structure it is if my workers live in Port Moody, they work in Port Moody. But there's a lot of municipal laws that re- re- don't allow trucks to park on streets. So that means that my, empo- my employee that lives in Port Moody has to drive back to Vancouver every night and then from Vancouver back to Port Moody the next day to work. And it's just a lot oh. of extra emissions and gas, which is crazy. I wish the you- municipalities would get on board. Okay, that's an interesting point. Peter, do you think municipalities could 
I don't know, bring in some rules that prevent, you know, that stop people from forcing them to drive? Yeah, I mean, that's I've never heard of that issue before, so it's yeah. definitely something worth taking a look at. I think especially for people that use their vehicles for work, there's lots of opportunities to get creative um, to make sure, you know, from tool libraries or storage lockers uh, where you don't actually need to be moving this. So there's lots local governments can do. So you want tradespeople to take the bus, just to be clear? You want them to take transit too? I want as many people to take transit as possible, and let's make it easier for them to do that than to drive. What about in the meantime, while people are getting nailed at the $1.76 per litre, between now and when everybody magically has instantly accessible transit? Well, let's get on it as fast as we can. You know, you can roll out buses pretty quickly um, in a in a situation where you actually need to. So, yeah, let's take this opportunity to expand transit all across the Fraser Valley and the Lower Mainland. Let's go back to the phone lines here. Jim in Surrey. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah. You know, there's also a carbon tax on your home heating bill, which went up. Food, clothing, every single thing you buy is hauled by what, Peter? It's hauled by a truck. Everything has gone up. And, hey, if you can help me with my 800-pound gas welding machine on transit, I'd appreciate that. Okay, That'd be Pe- awesome. Okay, Maybe Peter. You, what you what about the afford- pounds? And I'll take four hundred pounds. What about um, the afford- what about the affordability issue, Peter? I mean, the great thing about uh, fleet vehicles like trucks is that they get replaced on a regular basis, and you know the companies that are making these decisions about how they're shipping can easily make another choice and and go for their entire uh just decide for their entire fleet to be electric because they're making decisions based on the fact that the carbon tax is going to go up for the next 10 years Chris? um and so yeah it will eventually um you know factor into their business decisions. that is just amazing if you take a look at the stats on what we rely on for trucking i mean there are thousands of trucks that come down the Coquihalla and back up the Coquihalla, as we learned recently, every single day, that bring us the stuff we need to live. Uh, those aren't electric vehicles. These, these things are like prototypes at best right now. Like You're nailing people with an extremely high cost of living on bare essentials such as gasoline and diesel, and you're, you're just saying let them use a non-existent electric semi-tractor trailer truck and transit out the front door. If, if folks mm. are, are really worried about global warming, why are we nuking people in the wallet for their bare essentials here in Canada instead of being creative? Why don't we sell more natural gas to India, which wants to buy it? That's the big end of the emissions arithmetic problem here. And why don't we start using emissions from industrial-scale distributors as recycling? Why don't they start capturing things like CO2 and using it for stuff like they already do? Okay, let me let Peter respond to that. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, if I could respond on the cost of living, you know, climate change is the thing that is hitting our pocketbooks already. We had, we lost uh, half the poultry production in Western Canada in the floods recently. Farmers in Canada lost over a quarter of their crops this year because of drought. And so, you know, the cost of living that we're paying is already because of the impacts of climate change from things like fossil fuels and LNG, uh, which is not a better fuel. Um, we need to be LNG transitioning is not a better fuel? straight to renewables. LNG is not a better fuel than coal when you look at the whole life cycle impacts and the speed at which the methane gas in the atmosphere works. Then we're not going to make this discussion about that. Um, but okay. the truth is climate change is already hitting our pocketbooks and costing people their lives. Let's remember over 600 British Columbians passed away in climate yeah. disasters this past year. Let's squeeze another call in here. Phil and Marpole. Go ahead, Phil. Yeah, I just wanted to say that natural gas is a short-term transition fossil fuel that can eventually be replaced by electric power. And the electric power that can be produced can be the kind of electric power that is produced in France. An outstanding nuclear power safety record for the last 60 years. And I know what I'm talking about because I have a Franco-African cousin who's a who is a... Um, representative of a nuclear power plant, a public relations coordinator, and even the left in France supports nuclear power to a large degree, and I'm sure okay. Chris Sims would agree with me. Okay, let me see what Peter thinks about that on nuclear power. Peter, your thoughts? 
I mean, for very specific applications like a remote mine or something like that, I'm I'm not going to fight you on it. But the truth is, if nuclear was going to be the thing, it would have happened already. It's incredibly expensive, it's incredibly ca- capital intensive, and it takes decades to get one of these things online. We just don't have time for that. Uh, and the truth is, we have clean, affordable, uh, renewable power from wind, solar, geothermal, tidal um, already. Chris, go no, ahead. We don't. We do not have the watts. For that from solar and wind if you 92% want to percent to of electric the- man you're going to have to find a good affordable source of electric power and to dismiss something even like brand new modular nuclear really peter go ahead peter no go ahead we just got a minute left here peter go ahead and Nin- sum up 92 percent of the generation added in the united states in 2020 was from renewable power your talking points are stale Chris, the uh, wind and solar power are cheaper than nuclear, than gas and coal on a levelized cost of energy. Um, this is more than ninety percent of the energy being used in like Alberta we're not able right to now do this anymore. not wind and solar. Alberta has okay. the biggest solar farm ever proposed in Canada right okay. now, and Amazon is buying a warehouse there in order to, or because of that renewable power. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Novak Djokovic saga now in Australia. What a wild story this has been. The world number one tennis player. He has now been released from his quarantine hotel in Australia. But will he be allowed to play in the Australian Open? This is a crazy story. Now, Djokovic is unvaccinated. He received a medical exemption to enter the country that was overruled by immigration officials who put him into quarantine. Then he was released by an Australian judge. Now he's practicing. He's back to training. But will he be allowed to play in this tournament or will he still be kicked out of the country? Got Michael Tobe from the National Post standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Eric Sorensen. The image many thought not possible. Novak Djokovic on the tennis court in Melbourne. His fans couldn't be happier. For his family, vindication. But Novak is only fighting for uh, the liberty of choice. Djokovic's choice was not to get vaccinated. The Australian government overturned his medical exemption and prepared to deport him. But an Australian judge found Djokovic was not treated fairly, asking what more could this man have done, and ruled he could stay. Djokovic posted he was grateful and said, despite all that has happened, I want to stay and try to compete at the Australian Open. Many Australians aren't so happy. I don't think he should come and play. I don't think anyone should be treated any differently than anyone else. Okay, should he play or should he go? Now he's training to play in the Australian Open, but... Could the Australian government overrule the courts here and kick him out of the country? All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Michael Tobe, the very fine columnist at the National Post. I recommend his column on this one. Uh, the headline, Djokovic, Djokovic's legal victory makes a joke of Australia's COVID-19 policy. Michael, thank you for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Okay, really enjoyed your column on this. This is a wild story, a lot of twists and turns in this thing. Yeah. The, th- the thing that I'm wondering is they let the guy in in the first place, right? Like he was given this medical yeah. exemption to, to, in the first place, right? Yeah, and the medical exemption was actually accurate, as we've now discovered. Um, it was issued by the state government in Victoria, in Australia. And as we've now, you know, sort of learned through a whole rigmarole of releases of publications, uh, releases of private letters from November of last year and whatnot, although there were a lot of questions discussing, you know, who actually had jurisdiction over certain things regarding medical exemptions, uh, whether people can be allowed in the country after having COVID six months previous, et cetera, et cetera. We do find that Novak Djokovic and his team did things properly. And by the book, they actually applied directly for the medical exemption from the state government in Victoria and received it. Yeah. And what we dis- and the interesting thing is, Mike, is what we've discovered is that has been the process for several months, even to the point where Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison actually said as early as January 5th of this year that basically this is the way the system works. It goes through the state level, yeah. not the federal government that he runs. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a similar to the system in Canada, right? Like there's a provincial yeah. jurisdiction, there's federal jurisdiction. In Australia, this is the local state jurisdiction, you know, equivalent of a provincial decision. They let the guy in, and then what? And then it's federal immigration then overruled it, right? 
Yeah, briefly. Yeah. That's basically what happened. I mean, that yeah. was obviously based on the the hand of the federal government run by Scott Morrison, who basically intervened and decided that whatever medical exemption was through and the visa that was arranged initially should be canceled. And that's what they did. And they basically put Novak Djokovic into a hotel where he's been for a few days in quarantine. (laughs) Right. Apparently it was, it didn't seem like a very nice hotel, not what he's used to. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Speaking of Michael Tobe from the National Post. Now, the, the next step in the saga was Djokovic's lawyers went to court in Australia and won. So he's been let yeah. out of the hotel. He's back with his team in nice in nicer accommodations. And he's back to training. Now, it's 430 in the morning right now in Melbourne. So I, I imagine he's getting a little rest right now. But then I, I suspect he'll be back on the court here later this morning practicing. Yeah, I mean, that's what would normally happen anyways, no matter if it's Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, or any of, obviously, the great female tennis players from Serena Williams on. They, If they're there, Miss Williams actually isn't at Australia this year, but if they were attending, they go out early to any Grand Slam tournament or if they want to, major minor tournament around the world, and they can practice for a few days and get ready and do their various preparations before the tournament right. starts. Right. So yeah, he'll be he'll be there as far as we know. Right. So he's training. He says he wants to play. He wants to compete in the Australian Open. But I mean, it's not over, right? I mean, could the federal government there there in Australia, led by Scott Morrison, as you mentioned, the prime minister there, could they take it one step? Could they still kick him out of the country? Yes. I mean, technically, they could try to do it again. The problem is that if you go to the well too often, unfortunately, it often bubbles up. And I think yeah. that. Scott Morrison and the Australian government have sort of realized that they're caught between a rock and a hard place. They can't necessarily win this battle. They, Mr. Morrison right now looks like a national and international embarrassment based on all that's happened, even though obviously the, the right-leaning Australian Liberal Party is trying to ignore it as much as they possibly can. So the answer is basically in a roundabout way, Mike, yes, they could do it. They have that right. But based on what's happened here, I think it's highly unlikely that they will. Okay, how do you think this looks on Morrison there, the Australian Prime Minister? Oh, it looks terrible. I mean, I know that obviously there are, and there are occasionally Australian commentators who are saying that, well, does it really matter that a tennis player, or a tennis star in this case, had actually, you know, has actually somehow, you know, knocked a few holes into our existing policy for COVID-19 and mandatory vaccinations? It's just one example. The problem is, Mike, it's a high-profile example, and yes, it does unfortunately matter, because if this had been someone else who had come in from, say, another country, but was obviously either lesser known or unknown and just sort of made his or her or their way through the system, it might have got a little bit of press here and there, but very little notice from the, from the international side. In the case of this, because it's Novak Djokovic, who's the top-ranked male singles tennis player in the world, yeah. has won 20 Grand Slam titles in his career, which is tied with Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal for the most ever won in a career, which means that if Djokovic enters the Australian Open and wins it, he will actually break that tie and be ahead of both Federer and Nadal. Yes, it actually, you know, for him, this was obviously extremely important, extremely crucial to be there. And I think that overall, in the end, the Morrison government has been just hammered so badly through this and morrison also knows you know besides the point that not only is it a political embarrassment his political career could also potentially be on the line because we can talk about this a little bit australia has what are called leadership spills which is basically if you lose the confidence of your party caucus that being cabinet ministers backbenchers or otherwise and you don't have roughly 50 percent plus one of caucus support you can be turfed out very quickly and in australia that has happened many, many times, including in modern times, more than a dozen. Okay, so you think uh, you think this guy Scott Morrison could be could lose his job as prime minister over this? It seems hard to believe. I agree yeah. with you on the surface, but if there's enough frustration and if there's enough bad press uh, internationally, certainly and domestically to some degree, if there, you know, it really depends. If there's rumblings within the party caucus, they may just decide for whatever reason that enough's enough, he put us into a bad position, the Australian government didn't need to be in this life, we're going to make a change of pace, or we're going to try to change the leadership. I mean, a leadership spill doesn't always succeed. Sometimes they fail. But, again, this is such a weird circumstance that 
We know that Australia does it. The U.K. has obviously had party leadership spills. Even our country, up until yeah, a few decades ago, was actually very common to have these things. Very, very common in the Commonwealth countries. Right. So the possibility is there, Mike. Do I think it's going to happen? No. But could it happen? Yes. And Morrison knows full well, well that it potentially could affect him. Well, there's one thing for sure. This thing has been completely botched and bungled there in Australia. I mean, this is, you know, they let the guy in, then they try to kick him out. It's just unbelievable. Speaking of Michael Tobe, National Post columnist. Now, Michael, um, Djokovic, so he's like an anti-vaxxer. Is he some sort of medical, like, quack? Like, what's the deal with this guy? I think the medical quack part is accurate. Anti-vaxxer, he disputes to some degree. He came out in 2020, as you may know or may have even discussed in your radio show, Mike, and said directly that he was opposed to vaccinations, which right. people interpreted as be him being anti-vax. He has since qualified it to state that, no, he's not anti-vax and he has used vaccines in other ways. He's just opposed to the vaccines related to COVID-19. Now, that doesn't make it right or wrong, but obviously it's a little bit different than being an anti-vaxxer. However, being a medical quack or basically believe in, believing in scientific quackery, yes. And unfortunately, I list two examples in my column where he does. And I can go through them very, very quickly. Um, you know, one of them was listed in his book. Uh, Djokovic wrote a book in 2010 called Serve to Win. And what apparently happened was he had met a nutritionist at the time who, and I'm going to quote the rest of the BBC column from here, who asked him to hold a piece of bread in his left hand while he pressed down on his right arm. Djokovic claims he was much weaker while holding the bread and cited this as evidence of gluten intolerance. I mean, that's <laughs> insane enough. Here's the second one, which is literally as nutty, and I knew this one before because I'd read about it. Djokovic also claimed a number of years ago that, quote-unquote, positive thought could cleanse polluted water, and even suggested that, quote, scientists have proven that molecules in water react to our emotions. You ever heard of that, Mike? When did no, that ever actually that, happen? That is, that is pretty wild. Okay, so the guy has some uh, strange beliefs. He's not alone. They did let him into the country. Now they're trying to kick him out. The whole thing has been botched and bungled. So the bottom line is, do they, do they kick him out or let him play? Like, what do you think they should do? You know, even though it runs contrary to the way Australia has handled things during COVID-19, they're actually one of the toughest countries in terms of any laws or penalties when it comes to vaccination, and they believe in mandatory vaccination and have implemented it as a policy. The problem they have here is that the media storm has obviously turned the story into a completely different direction, and when you lose control of a narrative, be it political or otherwise, it's very hard to regain your footing and draw it back to your advantage. Sometimes the best move is not necessarily to de declare defeat, but just to accept reality that unfortunately, no matter what you think about Djokovic and his position on COVID-19, and for the record, wow. I don't agree with it, Mike. Sure. The problem is that based on what has happened here, based on the negative press they've received, and based on the fact that the courts literally just said, you know, just couldn't believe that they'd even been brought to trial and the judge argued, I'm just paraphrasing quickly, you know, what more could the man have done in terms mm -hmm. of the, you know, signing all the various forms to get a medical exemption properly? He followed the letter of the law. Right. It was basically a misinterpretation of the law within the federal and state levels in Australia. Okay. Ergo, I don't think they're going to kick him out. I don't think they're going to probably try to tackle it again. And if they do, they're taking an enormous risk and a, and a poorly calculated uh, gamble when it comes to political terms. Michael, I think you may be right. Thank you for coming on to talk about the story today. My pleasure. Take care. One of the biggest stories in British Columbia in 2021. It made headlines around the world. It was, the, of course, the devastating and deadly heat dome that hit British Columbia last June. And especially the devastation in Lytton, British Columbia, the town that burned to the ground in the June heat dome, displaced residents wondering if they will ever return to their hometown, many feeling forgotten. Now, remember in the aftermath of the heat dome, the provincial government said, yes, we will rebuild Lytton, we will rebuild this town. Some wondering if uh, any progress has been made to this point, and a lot of people feeling a little forgotten in the town 
of Lytton. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Britannia Glasgow, who is a resident of uh, Lytton, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Britannia. Hello. Thank you. Thanks a lot for doing this. Um, can you tell me where you live? You live just you live on the Lytton First Nation, right? Just outside of town. Um. Yep. Yeah, I live above town. Actually, I can see town now outside my window. <laughs> oh, okay. So you're um, there now. It's called IR Seventeen or Indian Reserve Seventeen. Right. Okay. Were Were you there the day that the fire started? Um. I actually wasn't here the day the fire broke out. Um. But my family definitely was, and all my friends were. <laughs> Yeah, what was that I was like? In Kelowna at the time the fire broke out. What was that like for them when the when the when the fire started there? Um, I mean, it's still something that they talk about every day. Um, mm-hmm. it seems that like I don't know, they don't even get they they can't forget. They can't forget. They won't forget. They're it's traumatized. It's burned into their brain. It's something they won't forget. And they they tell me bits and pieces from it, and it's like I am I'm just blown away by the tragedy of it. Yeah, no, it was horrific. It was horrifying. Uh, something for them to go through. Um, you were in you were in. Did you say you were in Kelowna that day? Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people. I know that a lot of people since the fire, of course, have been displaced. They've dispersed other communities. Where did everyone go? Like your friends in town. Did a lot of them go to Kelowna? Where Where is everybody? Where did they go? Uh, everybody's everywhere. Uh, so yeah. there's people set up in Lillooet. There's Camp Hope now, and they're down in Hope. There's people in Chilliwack and Kamloops and Vernon. Uh, anywhere, I guess, that they can get a place if they weren't um, staying in hotels. Yeah. So you you mentioned that you're you're at your your home there now in, on the on the First Nations Reserve there near Lytton. What is what are the conditions like there right now? Um, as for today, um, there's fences that cover every property. There's security at every corner of the town. Um, the they're still built. The buildings are still here. It looks like if there was if the snow wasn't here, it looked like the fire happened yesterday. Yeah, so they haven't done anything. They haven't taken any of the debris out. And I understand that there's snow now, but you think that they would have started absolutely anything before the snow came? Okay, so there's so there's there's been no rebuilding begun, and they're, they haven't even removed the debris yet. No. Okay. It's all, if you were to drive through town right now, you could still see all the chimneys, absolutely everything. Everybody's properties are still burnt right there. Yeah. What do you and think so of to that? drive through that, to go to work and to go to see my family and just to even just drive through town, just to go to anywhere, to go to Lillooet. You have to drive through the chaos, the horror every day. Oh, and it wow. makes you want to cry sometimes. Uh, I don't blame you. Like, is Lillooet the closest community? Is that where you have to go to get like groceries and things? Um, yeah, and so like yeah. with uh, the flooding, so the fire happened, and then the flooding happened, which made the highways close up. So the only highway open right now is Highway 12 to Lillooet. And I don't know, I, I've spoken about it before, but that road is scary. I, like, I'm a young woman, and I don't like driving it. It's spooky on a good day, not when it's snowing and avalanches and everything so highway 12's actually gotten closed it's closed up was closed up yesterday we couldn't even get to Lillooet yesterday right. speaking to britannia glasgow resident of Lytton, about the uh, the slow pace and recovery there for the town so britannia when you look when you drive through the town or you see the devastation there every day you, you mentioned that it makes you want to cry i don't blame you what goes through your mind when when you see that? Like, are, are you surprised that there hasn't been more of an effort to start at least start the rebuilding or cleanup process at this point? Um, I'm surprised. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. decided to come back home right before Christmas in December there, and there wasn't even running water up at IR 17, and so I just I don't know. You think that they would have anything to like make these people here who have to stay here or who chose to stay here like feel like they're in a in a community or in a in back home. I remember my grandma was driving back home one day and she said, oh, I'm heading home. And she said, oh, I'm because I'm not heading home. I'm heading to Lytton. (laughs) So there's no running water. Like, where, where do you guys get your water from? Uh, well, there's running water now. They've had that okay. going for a little bit now, a couple of weeks now. 
But, like, when I first moved back, yeah, there was no running water, and they said that I could go get water at the relief centers, and I didn't have a vehicle, and my dad worked until the relief centers were closed, and they didn't really have an answer for me for how, to, how, we were, how I was going to get water. So taking big jugs and taking them down to the creek and filling them up. Down to the down to the creek? You had to go down to the creek to get water? Yeah. Wow. And I was just kind of wow. wondering, as I'm walking down there, I'm like, what year do I live in? It's like, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, what do your friends and you know your family members, your friends in town, like, do they feel, how do they feel about what's happened, you know, months later here now? And you mentioned that it still looks like devastation. Uh, there's been no cleanup. There's been no rebuilding. What do people think about that? Do they feel forgotten in a way? I feel, yeah, um... I've heard more than one person tell me that they think that no one cares about the people here. Yeah. And it it breaks my heart because I love Lytton and I love the people here. And it just seems like we all just want to be together. We want something to be done. We want to be heard. We want to be seen. We want some sort of direction to come in, someone to come in and say, hey, okay, this is the plan for 2022. This is what we're going to be doing. This is what's going to be done. This is what we're bringing in. It seems like nobody is saying anything like that. Yeah, has there been any explanation to you or, or any timetable given on uh, on a rebuilding plan or effort? Um, after I spoke with Castanet, it seemed that a few people started talking a little bit. Yeah. Um, there was talks about 2023 coming in and like giving building permits out, but it's like 2023. We just started 2022, and you're telling me that they're not even thinking of giving building permits out until next year? Hmm. I, I don't know. I don't understand. What do people... I don't understand what's taking so long and why they can't be communicative with the people who are in town. Right. Speaking to Britannia Glasgow, a resident of Lytton, about this, the slow pace of rebuilding there, it sounds like nothing has been rebuilt so far. So 2023, uh, That's uh, I find that strange that they would say that's when the, the building would, would start. Like what? When you talk to your friends, your family members there, what are they hoping for the future? They want to see, they still want to continue to live there. They want the town to be rebuilt. Is that their hope? Um, I mean, a lots of people didn't even want to leave to go, like leave at all. Uh, yeah. The people who are from Linton are, they they love their community. They want to be here. They want to be home, and they don't want to see the the in the ashes like it's been. Right. What would be your, Britannia, what would be your message to, like, officials, like, if the, the premier or the government or the people who have said that they're going to rebuild this town, uh, you feel like you've been forgotten, I don't blame you. What would you say to them? Like, what would your message be? <laughs> Please come help us. Yeah. Okay. Well, I ho- get emergency services in here. Get the ball rolling. We need something to happen. Something good. We need something good to come in and happen here. All right, Britannia. I hope that ho- happens for you soon. Thank you for talking to me today. I'm very grateful to you for that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about the continuing battle over old growth logging in British Columbia. Now, last year we saw nearly 1,200 arrests of protesters at the Ferry Creek logging site on Vancouver Island. Activists calling for a shutdown of old growth logging in BC. As a new year dawns, more civil disobedience, more arrests. Yesterday, police arrested 10 people who blocked highways in Metro Vancouver and Nanaimo on the island. The Save Old Growth group says this is just the start of escalated protests, more highways will be blocked in the days ahead. Let's discuss now with our panel. Got both sides of it for you. Zane Hack is the National Action and Strategy Coordinator with Extinction Rebellion, one of the groups coordinating these blockades. Zane, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing it. Also on the line, Stuart Muir, Executive Director of Resource Works. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Stuart. Good morning. Thanks to both of you for being here. Zane, let me go to you first. What is the point of these blockades? It, it seems to me like it just angers people more than anything. Like, what are you guys trying to achieve by doing this? Yeah, you're right. Uh, it, is, it will anger people, and that's a risk that we're prepared to take because we know from the historical tradition that 
if you're going to change the emotional space of the public, you're going to be despised by the public initially. But through the persistence in the nonviolent transgression, you're going to ultimately bring the public along. And we've seen that with the civil rights movement. When Martin Luther King died, he was the most hated man in America. He had a disapproval rating of 75%. So that's a risk we're prepared to take because we're not willing to head towards a two-degree world where we're looking at mass starvation. Where, what, were the, what roads were blocked in the Lower Mainland yesterday? Was that, that was Highway 1, right? Yes, it was the off-ramp that comes out of Highway 1 in Burnaby, yeah. Okay, and are there more blockades going on today? Well, no, not today, but the general plan is that each week that goes by without government response, we're going to disrupt the highways at multiple points in the future and multiple days in the week during the morning rush hour of the westbound traffic. Because that's what it takes to actually incur a cost on this government at this point, because they're not even willing to do something that's a bit of a no-brainer demand and is supported by most of the province. Okay, Stuart Muir, what do you think of this? It's a little hard to tell what this group is after or who they represent. Um, I, I, I see in the rhetoric they say end all active old growth logging is a promise that the BC government has made. I can tell you definitively that no such promise has been made. So the starting premise for them seems to be just something uh, that's been invented for whatever reason. So I think, you know, for, for those who are inconvenienced in traffic and the the claim being made here is that it's because of some sort of justice denied issue. In fact, nothing could be further than the truth. So you're just being delayed because these people want to delay you and, as the guest says, make you angry. That's their purpose. Okay, Zane, what, how do you respond to that? Well, currently the government is facilitating one of the greatest criminal acts in human history. People in BC are going to continue to lose their homes and they're going to continue to die in heat waves, wildfires, and more floodings, and they're going to lose their livelihoods. So we're faced with a government right now that has decided that, it's, that that's a cost worth paying. And uh, for the past 30 years, we've been doing petitions, we've been doing marches, and it didn't have to come to this, but it now has. And carbon emissions have gone up by 60% over the past 30 years. And we've seen that the government is, isn't even willing to take the first minor step towards uh, changing, the, uh, protecting the future of this province. And I'll just say this, like, we have to recognize that the Earth's atmosphere is a gas chamber. And for the past 30 years, we've been emitting a poisonous gas in this gas chamber. And it's going to result in a two-degree world, which means societal collapse, mass starvation, mass rape, because that's a direct byproduct of societal collapse. Hey, hey Zane, let, let me ask you this. Uh, climate change, obviously, extremely serious issue. And when you take a look at the demands you're making, though, like shutting down all old growth logging in the province, for example, you know, I, I suggest to you that the the government is not going to bend to your to your wishes here, no matter how many roads you you block. And it just seems like if if this is a political campaign designed to win the hearts and minds of people, I don't know. It just seems that this seems to be going backwards because I imagine if like a lot of the people who get stuck in those roadblocks, I don't think they're gonna you're gonna change their mind while they're yeah. while while you're inconveniencing them. Well, yes and no. So the historical model is that people who are seeking justice and a radical transformation in society are hated by the public initially, but because they're objectively right, they persist in their nonviolent transgression and they end up winning. Like the suffragettes, they were hated by most of the people, but they persisted in their nonviolent disruption of the social space. The same with the civil rights movement. And because they were objectively right about their demands, they, per they ultimately won and they were able to change the national mood of the country. And you're right, actually, that blocking highways won't do the job, which is why this m campaign is actually modeled after the Freedom Riders, where people will get arrested multiple times until the government throws them in prison. In other words, there's nothing that the government can do to look good coming out of this. People okay. are willing to go to prison and more and more people are going to be mobilized over the next three to six months to risk arrest to the point of imprisonment. Stuart Muir, your thoughts? It's kind of confusing about the, the claims being made here, because I think if those who were in possession of the absolute truth were to mobilize, it, it certainly wouldn't be, you know, a privileged student who has apparently no idea about forest policy, even out at... Uh, you know, at UBC, they have a whole faculty of forest specialists who understand the issue here. We have the First Nations in forestry in British Columbia criticizing the provincial government for being disrespectful, 
compressed in its timelines, moving too quickly and flawed in its policies, um, they certainly don't want what uh, is being called for. And, and yet this guest wants to deny natural justice to First Nations in B.C. because of his own arrogant beliefs. I, I find it staggering that this is the premise by which people are being prevented from getting to Zane. their jobs, to school, and, and you know, to their doctor's appointments. I mean, it's ridiculous. How do you respond, Zane, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because we're in a position now where we don't have easy options anymore, and that's the fault of the provincial government, and they're the ones who need to answer for this. It's not we who, like, failed to act on climate change over the past 30 years. That's a decision that was made by people in charge uh, in political spheres of influence. And with all due respect, like, society isn't changed by intellectual uh, sort of persuasion and debate. It's changed by the nonviolent disruption of the social space of what, the public. What do you say, though, to to respond to Stuart's point there about First Nations who are involved in old-growth logging, many of whom have said, like, look, we want, we want groups like yours to stop uh, interfering in what we're doing. We'll make our own decisions about how we manage our own traditional territory and land base. How, how do you respond to, what do you say to those First Nations who are involved in old-growth logging? Well, with all due respect, like, this is the oldest trick in the book for the governments, is that they divide the community to debate and intellectualize an issue that is objectively not a debatable issue. And that's the oldest trick in the book. It is not debatable that we're looking at a two-degree world over the next 30 years, and we're looking at mass starvation where everyone's going to die. So the governments of wow. British Columbia and the federal government have already screwed over the indigenous people over the past few hundred years, and they're doing it again, but they're doing it nicely this time. Stuart, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about uh, climate issues, which are, as Mike says, legitimate, important issues, and we have everyone taking an oar in Canadian industry because that's how we make a difference here. But you're not explaining how this is connected to old growth forestry. So just to set the record straight on that, if you can imagine, listener, Rogers Arena, you may pass it every day in the SkyTrain, there's that amount of old growth for each and every single person who lives in BC. That's how much old growth and parkland is protected already. It's the size of Washington State. This idea that there is a connection between stopping traffic on a road and saving the global climate by stopping almost all forestry activity in BC, it's, it's just pure nonsense. It's an invention. And in fact, uh, we have a process underway. It's, it's not popular with everybody, but the provincial government has actually met all of its promises. The idea that there are promises not met, which is the key premise that this group is talking about, is simply fictional. And it has okay. to be said. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking old growth logging and some of the civil disobedience we're seeing. We, uh, we're seeing. we saw roads blocked in Metro Vancouver yesterday and on the island. Uh, ten arrests yesterday. Zane Hack is with Extinction Rebellion, one of the groups behind uh, those blockades. Stuart Muir, Resource Works. Just before we take a call here, Zane, St Stuart made the point before the break about the amount of protected old growth forest in British Columbia that's already protected. How do you respond to that? This is a frequent argument. Look, we've already protected a ton of old growth in B.C. Yeah. Your thoughts? Well, we need to put that into context, right? Because it's easy to say that we've got the size of Washington State for old growth forests, but the reality, when we put it into context, is that we've got less than 2% of productive old growth forests remaining in British Columbia, right? And the more we cut them down, the more we sort of increase the feedback loop that's going to facilitate more flooding and more wildfires because... One of the reasons why the flooding happened recently was because a lot of the trees weren't there that were supposed to be there that hold up the dirt and that protects the water from entering into spaces that it's not supposed to enter. And secondly, they, uh, the guests made the point about uh, we want all, uh, all forestry to be basically ended. That's not true either. We only want active old growth logging in the province to yeah. end. Okay, yeah. let's go take some phone calls here. Steve on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I mean, like, I get it, save the trees and all that, but if you got a beef with the government, why don't you take it to Parliament? Why don't you take it to the Hill? Why are you inconveniencing people that are just trying to get their life going? It's already hard enough to make a living with everything going up and the price of everything the way it is. These guys got to take it to the government and quit sticking it to us because they ain't making any friends here. Okay, Zane, what do you say to that? 
Well, we've been standing outside of the legislature and outside of the uh, offices of MPs for the past 30 years. It hasn't gotten us anywhere. And this is our last resort. We also don't want to be doing this, but this is something that, that we have to do in order to raise the tension and drama in community so that the government is forced to address an issue that it has failed to address in the past. Okay, Stuart, that's the tradition of, that we come from. Stuart Muir, your thoughts? Yeah, well, we've seen a dynamic forest industry over the years. It's changed. It wasn't always perfect. I mean, you can certainly look back to an era when, when the, the images that we remember were, were not pretty, and that was confronted. And we actually now have probably the most sustainable in British Columbia forestry regulations and approach to things of anywhere else in the world. And we're a model for how to do it right. And this idea of 2%, I mean, that's another fictional uh, emission from, from your guest here that does not stand up to scrutiny. There is a vast amount of old growth in BC. That's productive. Okay. There, are, there is room for improvement. I want to hasten to add that. We all know. Kathleen in Vancouver on the open line. Hi, Kathleen. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, I actually just wanted to reply to Stuart's comments about the disjoint sort of demand between ending old growth logging and addressing the climate crisis, as well as other concerns about people who are saying, well, don't block the highways, you're just inconveniencing regular citizens. I think that these people um, are having a normal emotional reaction, but they don't they're not coming from a place where they're understanding basic history of social change, right? So if you look at the the example of the Freedom Riders in the U.S. that Zane was talking about, those people were getting on buses causing huge amounts of disruption. People hated them, right? There were mobs of 200 people dragging them off and beating them. Even, um, even regular civil rights protesters hated them. And what they were asking for was they were asking for the desegregation of bus terminals. We know that the desegregation of bus terminals isn't going to end all uh, all issues of race inequality in the U.S. Um, but, I mean, it's not hard to see the parallels here. And okay. it's, it's obvious that you, you can't continue logging old-growth forests, but, you know, 2% of them are remaining. I don't know what Stuart's talking about saying that figure is fictional because there's some very good scientists that back that up. Stuart, um, let's, get a, let's get his response to that We're running as we run out of time. Stuart, go ahead. Yeah, well, we just found uh, 2.6 million hectares of old-growth that scientists are concerned about um, the idea of 2%, as I said, I mean, it's most definitely a fictional term. It's been used by some pressure groups. I know that it's being talked of, it, which doesn't make it true. When, when you look at the fact set that the government's dealing with, and they've had to grind in there and find out what the facts are, it, it's very different than the pressure group uh, rhetoric. So I think that's something the public needs to understand, that most of what you hear, including the top-line message that the government has failed to meet its promise to end the old growth logging, immediately there is no such promise. This is a very complex issue. It's been built up over okay. decades or generations, and lots, lots of change is needed, and it's happening. Squeeze in one more call here. Dave in Surrey. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Yeah, quickly, guys. Um, I guess the poisonous gas you're, you're, uh, when you guess it's talking about is uh, carbon, and carbon is essential for life on this planet. Without carbon, there'd be no life. And second of all, if they want to protest, why don't they go to the Chinese consulate, which is the biggest polluter in the world, and just open up one of the biggest coal-fired plants recently? Thanks, Mike. Okay, Zane, what do you say? That we got 30 seconds here. Zane, go ahead. Yeah, well, the bottom line is we're in Canada right now, and we've got responsibilities to each other in Canada as citizens and as a community. And it's the British Columbian government that, we, that has a social contract with us, not the Chinese government. And what I'll say is that the bottom line is we've got three to four years left to save humanity. That's what Sir David King, the former chief scientific, scientific advisor to the British government, has said. We've got three to four years left, and okay. the government has made up its mind that we are sending the future generations to hell.